He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, today we're going to be in the book of Hosea, uh, perhaps an unusual place uh, to be on Easter Sunday, but today we begin a new series walking through the Minor Prophets. Uh, but before we, we jump into explaining the Minor Prophets and, and the book of Hosea, I, I'm curious if you've ever been lost. Did you ever get lost as a kid in a department store, perhaps? You were perhaps trying to be sneaky and hide in the clothes rack, and you hid just a little bit too long, and then your mom or your dad walked away, and and there you were lost, right? Uh, just, just wandering around the store, walking in the aisles, and hoping every aisle that you came you would see mom or dad. Uh, as I thought about this question of have I been lost before, uh, I realized that I've spent a lot of my life lost uh, and getting lost. Um, if you uh, perhaps have been on a hike, and maybe you took a wrong turn. Um, I remember in college going on a, a hiking trip, and we were in the, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and um, and we were on this trail, and there was this road. You pulled up, and there was two ways you could go on the trail, either side of the road. Well, of course, we went the wrong side of the road for two miles. Uh, and then we had to, and we realized that we had gone the wrong way. And the place we were planning to camp, we had to go back the two miles that we had come, cross the road, and go another two miles in the other direction, um, just hoping that maybe we would see a little bit of light at the little uh, campsite uh, that was set up on the trail for you uh, to hike. Uh, it's a little unnerving to be lost at night. Uh, or, or maybe on a trip, uh, this is uh, what happens to me most often, even in the age where you have your phone telling you at every waking moment what direction to go, um, sometimes you get lost. I don't know if you've found that. Usually I've found that Apple Maps are way inferior to Google Maps, you know, and that's, that's not a plug for them. I, I don't know if there'll be any copyright issues with this now, but um, go with Google Maps if you can. But uh, the thing is, there's still operating error, you know. Uh, you still have to pay attention to when it tells you to turn. Um, I have two GPSs in my car. I don't know if you have uh, the privilege of this. I have the GPS on my phone, and then uh, my lovely wife uh, is with me. We, we together navigate the roads. Um, and, uh, and so it's easy to get lost, you know. And in those ways, uh, perhaps it's easy to, uh, to course correct and, and make a turn and, and make your way back. But sometimes in life, I don't know if you felt this way. Sometimes in life you can feel lost. Maybe, maybe it's a decision that's looming and you just feel at a little bit of a loss of which way to go. Or, or maybe you just feel like you've kind of lost your way and things that uh, seem to be clear aren't so clear anymore. Uh, this, this can happen in kind of small ways and sometimes it can happen in big ways where you question the whole direction of your life. Like, what am I doing? <clears throat> it's easy to get lost and it, the few times that I've been lost in my life, I've, I've come to realize this, <clears throat> that the longer you're lost, the more despairing it is. The, the longer you stay lost, the longer you don't know the direction that you're going or that you can't see the light uh, to, to get to where you're going, the more despairing you become. At first, as a kid, you started walking those aisles and you're like, where's mom and dad? Where's mom and dad? And then you started pacing, right? Then you started going really quickly. At first, you miss the first exit, and then you miss the next exit, and then you realize you're adding 20 minutes to your trip, and the, the more angry and upset you and despairing you become. The longer we're lost, the more despairing we get. But often when we're lost, and I know it's not always this easy, especially in life, all it takes is hearing our parents' voice. Michael. There it is. There's mom or dad. All it takes is seeing the light on that campsite. That tells you you're almost there. Just go a little bit further. 
even though you put way too much stuff in the backpack that you're carrying. You're almost there. Uh, just go a little bit further. There's the next exit. Just go a little bit further. But as often is the case in driving, uh, as they say, you know, when you're lost, the, the two things that you never do <clears throat> is you never admit it and you never stop and ask for help, right? Um, well, in our lives, that's actually the first place we should begin, is actually stopping and asking for help. I, I want us to think about Hosea, and I want us to think about uh, our way home uh, as we go through this book. But to, to introduce us to the minor prophets, um, we're going to be walking through the, these 12 books. There's 12 minor prophets, and we're going to cover them one, one prophet a week. Uh, and our rhythm here is to preach through books of the Bible. However, my uh, desire to, to kind of expose us to larger amounts of Scripture and to, to take an area that's often unfamiliar to us and help us to grow more familiar has led me to say let's, let's give an overview of, of each sermon looking at its broad theme uh, to help us as God's people understand uh, these uh, well, uh, not very well-known books and how they apply to our lives. They're not minor because they're insignificant. Uh, they're minor because they're, they're shorter than what we know as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you are familiar with the Old Testament. But here's the thing about the prophets. Every prophet is a messenger that comes to deliver God's word to a people. Often to God's people, sometimes God sends his messenger uh, to other nations outside the people of Israel to deliver his word. And, and when you listen to the prophets, if you were to read through Hosea perhaps this week or in this coming week, or to read through um, you know, some of the other prophets as we go through them throughout the next few weeks, uh, the book of Joel next week, uh, you'll notice that they don't, uh, they don't dance around the truth. They don't sugarcoat what God's saying. They get straight to the point. And God often sends the prophets to do two things, to confront sin and the people of Israel, and to comfort with the hope of God's redemption. Uh, those two things we see time and time again. It was ultimately Israel's sin that would lead them into a really dark place. Israel's repetitive sin and, and rebellion against God would lead them to a dark place of God's judgment and exile. And there in the midst of darkness, what we see God continue to do again and again, which is the theme of this series, is that God speaks. God is there, and He is not silent. And when He speaks, He speaks hope in the darkness. And that's what we see Him do time and time again throughout the prophets. And the hope that God's prophets declare is a hope of a coming redemption through a promised Messiah. And it's that promised Messiah that will bring us to Jesus. And when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that it's the minor prophets and the other prophets that are upon Jesus' lips. Now, perhaps more than any other book other than the book of Psalms. Because it's the prophets that speak of the coming redemption that God is going to bring. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm the promised Messiah coming to bring God's salvation. So we begin this series on Easter because... All of the, if you think of it this way, all of the whispers of hope that God spoke among the prophets in the Old Testament begin shouting at us in Jesus' death and resurrection. God speaks loudly through Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. And in his death and resurrection, he says, This is hope. The hope that the prophets declare is fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. And our hope rests 
on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And, and interestingly, uh, we, we read from the Gospel of Matthew, but if we were to read in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 24, when Jesus rose from the dead, it tells us uh, that, that along this road, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples. And uh, as w- was apparently the case at first, some of his disciples didn't quite expect that it was Jesus. And Jesus was talking with them about what had taken place. And, and you know, he was asking them questions. And the disciples were like, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And, and then their eyes are open and they see that it's Jesus. And Jesus begins to explain to them from the law which is the first five books of Moses, the, the prophets, which is really uh, all the way from uh, after the law up and through uh, the Psalms. Uh, he begins to explain to them from all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself, it says in Luke 24, verse 27. And in fact, uh, in, in Luke 24, 44, uh, verse, verses 44 through 49, it says that he tells them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written in the Old Testament that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Listen, what we're doing this afternoon, I pray, in my feeble attempt, is doing what Jesus did with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, opening up his word and asking God to show us all things concerning Jesus, the hope that God declares in Hosea is a hope of God's faithful love. And that faithful love was put on its fullest and final display in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we come to the minor prophets looking for God's speaking hope in the darkness. And when we come to Hosea, we come to Hosea, which is a message of hope of God's faithful love. Hosea, if you're familiar or not familiar with him, was a prophet in the 8th century uh, to what's known as the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. It went by the name Israel, sometimes it went by the name of Ephraim or Jacob. Um, and it was, it was around about 30 years or so before uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, would be uh, defeated and taken away into exile by the Assyrians. Uh, at this time, though, Israel uh, was in a relative prosperous place, uh, though they had a pretty terrible king named Jeroboam II, uh, as you see there in Hosea 1.1. Uh, as it describes uh, the, the time in which Hosea was a prophet. Now, uh, a little bit of a back history for us. We're not going to dive into this in depth today, but we'll unpack this especially over the next uh, 12 weeks as we look at the prophets. There's, there's two really important dates for you to understand in Israel's history. Uh, the, the first is 722 B.C. That's the Assyrian exile. That's when uh, the northern kingdom Israel is defeated and taken into exile. You can read about it if you want in 2 Kings uh, chapter 17. The other date is 586 B.C. Remember, the, the dates count down uh, to Christ, and then they start counting up. 586 B.C., so this is about 140 or so years after the Assyrian exile. The southern kingdom, which had remained independent up until this point, is conquered, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and, and, and the southern kingdom, is known as Judah, is taken into exile, known as the Babylonian exile. 722 Assyrian exile, 586 the Babylonian exile. You can read about the Babylonian exile in 2 Kings 23. 
And so we, we have uh, this, uh, <clears throat> this situation where Israel is divided. After King Solomon in Israel's history, Israel's divided into two, two halves, the north and the south. The north keeps the name Israel, the south keeps the name Judah. And, and as you read through, if you were to read in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and uh, those books that contain the history in the Old Testament, you see king after king uh, just continued to lead, often lead God's people astray. Uh, there were some that arose up and that were faithful to God, but many uh, were unfaithful to God and led Israel to be unfaithful to God. <clears throat> and, and so when we come to the time of Hosea, Hosea is right on the cusp of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, being taken into exile. But what's bad is that Israel doesn't even know it. They don't even know what's about to happen to them. Things seem relatively at ease and they don't know what's going to take place. They've forsaken God, but it didn't happen overnight. They've been doing this for decades. They were still singing the Hallelujah Chorus, but they had, they had now turned to worshiping Baal, the false god of the peoples around them. They, they still sang God's praises, but they lived for their own pursuits. In Hosea uh, chapter 4, God will say to Hosea, uh, he says, deliver this word to the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of this land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Not only that, but the priest of the land, the people who were supposed to represent God to the people of Israel, had forsaken God's law. They were leading God's people astray. They weren't even holding fast to God's law and teaching people God's law. Instead, they were guilty. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, it says in Hosea 4.6. Because you, the priest, have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. So, Hosea is coming to deliver God's message to a people who are in a bad spot, but they don't know it. And the, the message that, that Hosea delivers isn't any message. You know, most prophets get an assignment to go to a place and deliver a message. Well, Hosea has a unique assignment in that he gets to live his message before he delivers it. And if you're not familiar with Hosea, you might be shocked that this book is in the Bible because you're going to find that Hosea is called to marry a prostitute. And that woman, her name is Gomer, has children, not only with Hosea, but with others. And God tells Hosea to continue to love her and to pursue her, even in her unfaithfulness. And what all of this means is this, this prophetic symbol, this uh, lived image that's on display of God's love for his people. So here's the message in a way of, of Hosea. It's the story of a holy God with faithful love for an unfaithful people. It's the story of a holy God with a faithful love for an unfaithful people. I have four things I want us to, to see as we walk through Hosea. <clears throat> Hosea is broken into to really two chunks. Chapters 1 through 3 tell the story of Hosea and Gomer uh, that I began to describe a moment ago. And then uh, Hosea 4 through 14 is really uh, Hosea's prophecies and, uh, and his message that he delivered to Israel at various times. It was a, a message confronting their sin and idolatry and, and holding out the hope of God's restoration and redemption. But before we jump into Hosea 1 through 3, I want, I want to present this first point 
the simple point, that, that perhaps it's an, uh, an elementary point, a point that you would expect at a vacation Bible club, but it's my first point that I have for you on this Easter Sunday, and it's simply this, that God loves you. As we talk about the story of Hosea and the picture of a holy God with a faithful love for an unfaithful people, I can't help but begin here because before we say anything else of what Hosea gets into, what's at the backdrop of this is God's love. We know the scriptures well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 My personal favorite, Romans 5.8 but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still Gomer, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 38-39 says that those who belong to Christ, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But God's love isn't just any kind of love. We, we love to talk about love in our culture. We love the idea that God is love. But God's love isn't just any kind of love. It's not a sentimental love. It's not a superficial or shallow love. I remember as a kid when uh, I was in elementary school and uh, later elementary school and there was a girl that I liked. I, I could have stood up on the table and told the whole lunchroom that I love her. But it meant about this much, right? Because when it came time to go play basketball or video games, I was going to do that, right? Um, <clears throat> it would take me a lot longer to figure out what it meant to, to love a woman as my wife. <clears throat> God's love isn't superficial. It's a covenantal love. It's a faithful love. He identifies himself in the scriptures with us as our groom. Our husband, this is particular to Hosea and the reason that I start with this is because God is depicting himself as the husband of Israel. He's depicting himself as a faithful husband to an unfaithful wife. And we see this uh, because God is our husband, it means that his love is both beautiful and our sin is horrific. He's going to do this time and time again throughout the scriptures. And uh, Pastor Chris, I love his testimony. Uh, sometimes I feel this way when I think about being uh, a father as well, that, uh, that God has changed me in some of the same ways. But, but sometimes I think about being a husband, I feel like a lousy, lousy husband. Maybe you feel like you have a lousy husband. Maybe you've had a father who you feel like is a lousy husband. When God declares himself to be our husband, it's unlike any husband that you are or that you've known. It's a, it's a faithful Husband whose love for us is uncompromising and unending. Isaiah 54, 5 through 8 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. An overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion with you. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. This is how God speaks to Israel. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then at the end of it all, in Revelation 19, when God sums up what's going to come in the end, he says there's going to be a marriage. There's going to be a marriage 
between Jesus, our groom, and the church will be adorned as his bride at the end of time. All of this is headed to marriage. Not an earthly and physical marriage, but a marriage between Jesus and his people. I don't know what image you have of God. But the image I want you to have today is of a God who loves you with a covenantal and faithful love. And he welcomes us into a life-changing relationship with him defined by his faithful love. And here's the thing, when you experience faithful love, you can't just yawn at it. When you experience faithful love, it changes you. And God's faithful love that he shows to us changes us. He is our maker and he is our husband. Do you know what that says? That says the God who's sovereign, who spoke by his word, isn't just a distant God, but he's a loving God who draws near and knows you in the most intimate of ways. For God to be our maker and to be our husband is to say that God is sovereign and made us and is to say that he loves us and desires for us to draw near to him. He intends to know and enjoy all those who trust in him just as he intends for us to know and enjoy him. God loves you. But as I've already indicated from Hosea, if our relationship with God is supposed to be a love story or a marriage, it's a bad marriage, right? Uh, If it's supposed to be a love song, it's one of Adele's love songs. You know, it's a hello. You know, like from the other side, God's like, hey. Because we're, we're way over here. And God's way over there. And things haven't gone the way they're supposed to be. When we begin to see God's love for us, it begins to put into perspective our greatest problem. The greatest news that I could tell you is that God loves you, but I have to be honest in the same breath and tell you that you have a problem, and it's the same problem that I have. All of us do, and that problem is sin. And Hosea shows us, and this is where we're going to jump into Hosea, that sin is spiritual adultery. Look at Hosea, verses 1 through 2. They're starting in chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when when she had weaned No Mercy... She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. As I said, Hosea can be broken down into that first, this first section of chapters 1 through 3 that tell the story of, uh, of Hosea and Gomer. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, but we'll reference, as I already have done, chapters 4 through 14 to help us make further sense uh, of Israel's sin and God's hope of redemption. Uh, But here in in this section, um, 
we, we begin to see that sin is spiritual adultery. And if, if I could say it another way, I would say it like this. Sin is not merely breaking an impersonal command. Uh, we all know, uh, perhaps, are familiar with God's command uh, to not have any other gods other than Him, to, uh, to, to not blaspheme the, the name of the Lord, to, uh, to honor Him. And uh, we know not to steal, not to kill, not to lie, not to covet. We, we see these commands. And it's easy to begin to think that, uh, that what sin is is merely just breaking God's commands. And, and no doubt it is. But what Hosea helps us to see is the deeper reality of sin, that it's not breaking an impersonal command. We all do that when we don't fully stop at the stop sign. You know what I'm saying? You'll do that twice the next time. Uh, it's not just an impersonal command that has very little difference in our life. I apologize if that was a confession. You, none of you look like you do that. Sometimes you don't fully stop, even like even in a neighborhood where you're familiar. Uh, you should, and I, I'm confessing my sin to you. Um, it, it isn't just breaking an impersonal command, but what sin is at its core is a personal betrayal of a loving God. Have you ever been betrayed? You ever had your trust betrayed? Somebody said something that they weren't supposed to say that you shared with them? You thought somebody was committed to you and they proved themselves to be not committed? Sin is a personal betrayal of a loving God. And the degree to which God loves us is what makes sin so horrific. That we would sin against Him. And so what we see in Hosea is God tells Hosea to go and take as his wife a woman named Gomer. The, the commentators are uh, split as to whether Hosea was um, in the already in the activity of giving herself away as a prostitute before they were married or after they were married. I think, as it says here, and to me seems clear, she was, she was already known as that. And God says, go and get her. And then you're going to have children with her. And love her as your wife. And make a home with her as your wife. And so Isaiah does that. And he begins to, to unpack to us their children. And uh, what we see is they have three children. And each of their children have names that none of us would name their, our children, right? Um, we, we have first Jezreel, which means God sows, but was a reference to, uh, to an act of judgment that God brought on Israel through the person of Jehu uh, <clears throat> because of the killing uh, uh, back in, in First Kings. You can see the story of how this unfolds. And he, he, he speaks of this as they've sown to their sin, and now they're going to reap judgment, just like they reach judgment in the valley of Jezreel. And then he, he goes on, apparently some time has passed, and there's another child, no mercy. <clears throat> La Ruhamah, as you see perhaps in your footnotes of your Bible, that's, that's the literal name that she's called, uh, which means no mercy. God says, I'm no longer going to have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them. So we've, we've gone from having God's protection take away, now he's saying, I'm taking away their pardon. No mercy will be shown to them for their sin. Again, remember, Israel hasn't just, it's not like they, uh, they just told a lie, uh, and, and now God's bringing this judgment on. It's decades of unfaithfulness and rebellion against God, and God is saying all of this is, the roosters are coming to roost, right? Like, this is all coming to play. The, the naming of the children, if you will, what you see taking place is God is saying because of spiritual adultery, God's judgment will come. The naming of the children tells us God's judgment's coming. 
His protection is taken away. His pardon is taken away. And then the worst of all, the third child, after she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and his name was not my people. If you wanted to summarize the story of the Bible, you could say that the story of the Bible is the story of God making a people for himself. He's making a people for himself, bringing them to himself. And now he's saying to Israel, you're not my people, I'm not your God. God's presence being taken away. Spiritual adultery leads to judgment. That's a sad reality. <clears throat> and we begin to see the, the nature of, uh, uh, of Israel's unfaithfulness. You notice in the first child it says that, uh, that Gomer conceived <clears throat> and bore a child to Hosea. But after the first child, we don't know if it was to Hosea or, who it, or to who it was. It doesn't say that she bore a child to Hosea. It just says she conceived and bore a daughter because when you are unfaithful, you don't know. And that's the story of Israel. Unfaithful. Even having the appearance of belonging to God, singing His praises, but unfaithful when they thought God wasn't looking. Our spiritual adultery brings judgment. And, and what takes place with Israel, their spiritual adultery, if you will, throughout, throughout the, the history of the Bible and up until today, spiritual adultery really, if you think about sin, we've already said that it's not merely uh, breaking an impersonal code, but it's a personal betrayal of a loving God. The way this often expresses itself is in idolatry. And this is what takes place with Israel. The quintessential problem for Israel was they gave themselves to idolatry. Some of you may be familiar with this story in the Bible and just the trajectory of, of God's dealing with his people. But you remember when God brought Israel out of Egypt? What a glorious day that must have been. We just celebrated uh, on Good Friday, which takes us back to the Passover when God spared the people of Israel from the, the death of the firstborn son, which was brought as a judgment upon, upon Egypt and brought them out victoriously from Egypt. They had seen the powerful hand of God. And Moses was up on a mountain, maybe like 40 days, getting the Ten Commandments. And what was Israel doing at the base of the mountain? Worshiping an idol. They'd already seen God's redemption. And there they were, worshiping an idol. And it happens time and time again. Once God brought them into the land, they forgot God and gave themselves to the idols of the people. And in the Old Testament, the idols that they worshipped are often tied to physical structures. We see uh, these references to poles of Asherah and Baal statues and golden images. And, and, and that was just tangibly evident. Their idols were tangibly evident. And here's the thing about idols is today our idols aren't always tied to these physical structures. But they're just as tangibly evident because the heart of humanity hasn't changed. It was John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. And the idols that we make don't change much over time, even though their appearance do. We give ourselves to the idols of pleasure, of money, of power, thinking these things can satisfy us, thinking we can find our significance in these things, and they fail us time and time again. Listen to Israel's history. And maybe you'll relate to Israel. Hosea 4, verses 17 through 19. 
Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, has joined itself to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. And their rulers dearly love shame. And the wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. It's, it's like this with idols. They never satisfy. They gave themselves to drink, and when that was gone, they gave themselves to something else. It says they've been, they've reaped, they've sown to the world, they've sown to the wind, and they've reaped the whirlwind, is what Hosea will say. It's what happens with our idols as we give ourselves to them. They take us further than we want to go. They keep us longer than we want to stay. And they make us pay more than we want to pay. It never works out. And yet, like Israel, we give ourselves time and time again. I, uh, Hosea 8 says, Set the trumpet to your lips. Once like a, a, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Listen to this. To me they cry, My God, we Israel know you. But then Israel has spurned you and rebelled against my law. Oh, we're saying the right things, but our life looks different. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. Think about, go back to Exodus. When, when Israel was brought out of Egypt, it says that they plundered the Egyptians. Basically, the Egyptians were like, look, your God's you know, we're really scared. Take whatever we got and go. And so they gave them all their gold, all their jewelry. God had provided for them in abundance when he delivered them. What do you think they used to make the idols? The very things God had given them in their redemption, they used to make an idol. They turned those things that God had given them against him. It says that... <clears throat> In verse 5, Jeroboam the second actually, they, they did the same thing. History repeats itself to um, when, when the kingdoms were divided. Jeroboam set up another golden calf and called the people to worship. And God says in Hosea 8, 5, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it's from Israel, uh, for it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Here it is. They sow to the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yet um, yield no flower. It's talking about the, uh, the, uh, just how unfruitful it is to give ourselves to idols. And it goes down, and it says in verse 14, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour, devour her strongholds. Israel forgot its makers, but they continued trying to find their significance and their security in their works. They built more cities. They built more stuff, thinking that that would provide them security and significance, but they had forsaken the one who had provided them security and significance from the very beginning. That's what happens with our idols I could keep going. Hosea 10 says this. Hosea 13 continually talks about the idolatry of Israel. And if I could summarize it to us, you may say, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around. What, what do you mean? I've not worshipped a Baal statue. Maybe you did before you came. Uh, let's talk after service. But most likely, none of us have statues that we're worshipping. But the thing is, an idol is loving and prioritizing anything in our lives or our heart's affections over God. Here's, here's what it looks like uh, for uh, us to have idols. It means when we give ourselves to money and making money or being concerned about our money. It, it means you can give yourself to good stuff, to 
family and children, perhaps putting greater significance and meaning and being a mom or a dad than, than, it, than, it, than it belonging to God. Perhaps you can put it in a relationship or even the thought of a relationship that you would find your significance and security that somebody else would look at you and say, I love you. We can do it when we look to our career advancement or our, our educational achievement or, or some political cause or some social cause. Anything that we give ourselves to and prioritize over and our heart's affections to over God. And, and here's the thing about idolatry. Sometimes as we talk about this, Christians uh, often and rightly talk about warning against giving ourselves to idols. It's all throughout the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. I, I think sometimes we we think to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm seeking to follow God. I have not given myself totally over to making money or to my educational pursuit or to my career advancement or to this relationship. I mean, I'm trying to follow God. I just keep tripping over the stand, you know, like uh, that's the only thing that I'm doing, you know. Um, here's the thing about idols. If I could break it down in this way, you can give yourself to an idol in a small and temporary way in your daily life. The moment that, that that desire and stress and worry and anxiety over money overtakes you and leads you down that anxious toil. I've been there. You begin to churn the wheels, giving yourself to that. Thinking about that relationship. It just consumes your heart. There's no room for worship. There's no room to stop and pray to God. Because it's more important than anything else. But idolatry can also happen in big and life-altering kind of ways when you, when you find yourself chasing something and all of a sudden you've lost yourself in chasing it and you've lost sight of God. Big, life-changing ways, small, temporary ways, and all in between. But it's when we give ourselves to loving or prioritizing anything in our lives and, and our heart's affections over God. And like Gomer, we're too often content to chase our significance, our pleasure, our meaning, and what's fleeting won't, won't last. As awesome as the marriage may be or the relationship may be, what happens when it's gone? Once you get the promotion, what next? Once you graduate, where will you find your significance? None of those things are bad. But when we elevate him above God, what happens when, um, when, when pride and resentment overtake your heart, holding on to self-righteousness or, or revenge over God? It consumes you. We give ourselves to these idols in big and small ways, giving ourselves to what's fleeting. They can't protect us or ensure our satisfaction. There's Charles Spurgeon who said that it only takes one sermon to explain salvation, but it takes ten to persuade you to salvation. It only takes one time really to explain the idols of our hearts, but it might take ten times to persuade us to do something about the idols of our hearts. We, we need this constant reminder, and, and Hosea pinpointed this for Israel. Look, if you will, just note Hosea 5.5 5 and Hosea 7.10. And I'm just going to read 5.5 because 5.5 says the same thing as 7.10. So if you want to check me, look at 7.10 while I read Hosea 5.5. Why wouldn't Israel listen to God as he gave the prophets telling them to turn from their idolatry? Hosea 
Verse 17. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt, and Judah also shall stumble with him. Why won't we listen to God? Pride. We set out to do it our own way, thinking we know better. We'll handle it on our own terms. Sin is spiritual adultery, and often the thing that keeps us from doing something about it is we don't want to admit that we're wrong, that we need help. Too often we're the the comical uh, scenario of the, the man who's lost in his car, unwilling to admit it and unwilling to stop and ask for help. Pride gets in the way of seeing our sin as spiritual adultery, and it's been that way from the beginning, and it continues to be that way today. Believer, perhaps there's some sin, perhaps there's some struggle that you've wrestled with, and you just don't want to admit it. Or maybe you admitted it a while ago, and it's been a long time since. Be honest with God. Don't be stubborn and resist. His love for you is faithful. Come to Him. Maybe, maybe you aren't quite sure that you're ready to give yourself to, to being a follower of Christ in a relationship with Him. There's some check in your spirit that says, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not sure I want to give myself the cost if I'm willing to lay it down in pursuit of the Lord. Don't harden your heart to Him. Don't be like Israel where your pride is speaking to your face and you just don't even see it. Sin is spiritual adultery, but redemption, point three, comes through God's faithful love. Redemption comes through God's faithful love. Oh, what good news this is. After, uh, in Hosea 1, after uh, we see this description of Hosea taking Gomer as his wife and then them having children and her children from other lovers and we see this judgment that God promised. It's almost like God flips everything in verse 10 of chapter 1. Yet, he says, the number of the children of Israel Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That sounds a lot like God's promise to Abraham. And in place in in the place where it was said, You are not my people, it shall be said that you are children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel, now we're talking about a divided kingdom becoming a united kingdom again, shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God's turning his judgment on its head. He's promising the hope of redemption. He's saying to the people of Israel, your sin of unfaithfulness, I am calling it out so that you might return to me. And that the way to return is, is to return to a God who's faithful in love. And, and here's how we see this. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, God does something that <clears throat> children you should never do. He calls the children to rebuke their mother for her unfaithfulness. Um, and he's calling Israel. You see, Israel is represented not just by Gomer, but by Gomer and the children and their unfaithfulness. And, uh, and he's calling them to, to call out her unfaithfulness. But listen to God's response. I, I, don't, I think sometimes in our minds we think in light of our unfaithfulness, in light of our sin, there's no way that God would approach us with love. There's no way that God could still approach us after our sin as a loving husband. I mean, if you cross my path and I trusted you, there's a good chance that, that it may not go so well. And remember, it's the story of a holy God. Our sin is a personal 
betrayal of a loving God. And listen to what Hosea 2 verse 14 says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. The valley of Accor was the place where Israel was defeated. After they came out, uh, they went into, uh, they came out of Egypt and they were going into the promised land. They defeated Jericho. You remember seven times around the wall, the walls fell down, they went in. Uh, it's a great story if you haven't. It's in Joshua. There's one greedy guy named Achan who went to Ai and he took money for himself. He loved the idol of money. And Israel was defeated in the valley of Accor. It was a place of defeat and humiliation. God says, I'm going to turn the valley of Accor into a hope, a door of hope. It's this, this amazing tenderness and, and love that he expresses. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. He's describing new creation. God's, God's doing it all over again. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And if you didn't get it the first time or the second time, verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And here it is. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And they shall say to me, you are my God. This is God's faithful love pursuing us in our unfaithfulness, wooing us back. Yes, God is righteous and will condemn us if we persist in disobedience and unfaithfulness. But before he drops his judgment, he woos us to repentance with his faithful love in pursuit of us. Look down now at chapter 3. <clears throat> It says, and the Lord said to me, apparently some time has passed. All of this, you would think, man, Hosea and Gomer have surely got things worked out. It says in Hosea chapter 3, 1, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And he goes on to describe how he purchased her out of slavery. For the children of Israel, he says, shall dwell many days without a king or prince. Speaking of exile, God's going to bring exile. But afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in to fear of the Lord to his goodness in the latter days. You see, redemption is promised here through one who will come as a Davidic king. God's going to come and deliver his people. And he's going to do it through a king. He's going to do it through a king who, just like Hosea, will purchase Israel out of their slavery and their bondage. 
And friends, this is what brings us to the cross. This is what brings us to the hope of God's faithful love. That God was true to his word. That his faithful love led him to send his own son to pay for our sins, to purchase us out of bondage, to deliver us from our sin and our rebellion and our unfaithfulness, and to bring us to himself. And the final point that we'll end with is simply this, that repentance is the way home. Repentance is the way home. Stop and ask for help. Romans 4, or excuse me, Hosea 14, it concludes in this. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls for the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. And you, the orphan, finds mercy. The way home is repentance. God's made it a door of hope open to us through his faithful love, through sending his son, our Messiah, to deliver us from our sins and to be raised from the dead. It's the light of the resurrection that's dawn that gives us hope. It's the voice of our faithful husband beckoning us by name, saying, come back to me. And all we need to do is stop and ask for help. Return to the Lord. Here's our hope this Easter as the band comes. You are not beyond God's faithful love. Just like Israel in our unfaithfulness. We are not beyond God's faithful love. So, receive His love. And love Him in return. God's saying, call me my husband, not my Baal. Love me affectionately because I've loved you. And the second is, sounds a lot like it, but it's this, no one is beyond God's faithful love. So love others accordingly. If we've been loved greatly, how can we not be a people who love greatly? When Jesus rose from the dead and he sent out his disciples, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples in the image of our Savior. A Savior who laid down His life for us in faithful love, calling us to go and love others by pointing them to the one who loves faithfully. Let's pray.